0: This is episode 32 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the man who made Houdini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello, and welcome to season two of the Magic Detective Podcast. This is the podcast for all things related to magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and technically, this is episode 32, but who's counting? Uh I am very excited for this new season and ready to get things rolling. So, uh oh by the way, if you have uh if you're new to the podcast, you've never listened to it before, please go back and listen to the previous 31 episodes for a ton of great magic history stories, but um hey, if you want to start here, that's fine too. Uh today we're going to get right into the feature. Um today The episode is about the man who made Houdini, and it's not without a little bit of controversy. In fact, the reason I began down this road of research was to attempt to get to the bottom of an apparent controversy. But before I do that, let me set the stage. The year was 1899. Harry Houdini was a struggling performer doing everything he could to push his way up the showbiz ladder. But he he just couldn't seem to get any traction. In February of 1899, he presented a show in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the Minneapolis Press Club, the location of which was at the Postal Cafe. Houdini was on hand to entertain them with sleight-of-hand tricks. He was also appearing at Cole and Middleton's Palace Museum in Minneapolis. This comes from a February 21, 1899 article in the Star Tribune newspaper. The following month, Houdini would move to the Palm Garden in St. Paul, Minnesota. The St. Paul Globe newspaper, March seventh, 1899 edition, records an event that happened involving Houdini, and here is that story. Houdini was performing at the Palm Garden, and part of his act was the challenge handcuff routine where anyone could bring cuffs up and he would attempt to escape from them a member of the audience suggested that he let the police try so between acts houdini and the manager of the palm garden headed over to the central police station in saint paul and they asked chief Schweitzer if uh if well he could be challenged with a pair of the uh the police cuffs. The chief comes out with an unusual pair. According to the newspaper, the chief was quoted as saying, I'll fix him, meaning I'll fix Houdini. I've got a pair that would defy Mephistopheles himself. And they put the cuffs on Houdini, and then uh, they added a few more modern cuffs on him as well. And then Houdini was escorted into another room to attempt his escape in private. Two minutes later, Houdini came back into the room with the cuffs not only removed, but locked together. The locking together was a subtle way of showing that he didn't simply slip the cuffs off his wrists, but rather he had to open them in order to be able to lock them together. And as I mentioned, the feat made the newspaper. In that same issue of the paper, this article appeared... The bill for the week at the Palm Garden is an especially strong one. There's a good contortionist, plenty of first-class song and dance artists, a one-act comedy, the rehearsal for a curtain raiser, and Miss Hunt, the Queen of the Roman Rings. But the bright particular star of the performance is Professor Houdini, who, assisted by his wife, performs the most difficult feats of legerdemain and Sleight of Hand. Some are really remarkable. Professor Houdini is tied, manacled, and securely sealed up in a sack to the satisfaction of a committee. Then the bag, with its contents, is placed in a massive trunk and pushed in a cabinet. Three seconds later, the cabinet is overturned, and Mrs. Houdini is found in the place of her husband, with the seals and knots apparently intact. Houdini, the publicity hound, is coming into his own. This happens the first week that Houdini's at the Palm Garden. Now, if we switch to the famous story, we know that at some point prior to March 14th, Martin Beck, the showbiz impresario, arrived at the beer hall with a group of other theater owners. Beck witnessed Houdini's act of escaping handcuffs, but thought, They must be faked. So Beck challenged Houdini to escape from some handcuffs that he would bring. And the following night, Beck brought with him several pair of cuffs, and Houdini escaped from all of them. That's the story we're familiar with. It's the same story that's in Ken Silverman's bio on Houdini, uh, and basically similar stories in the Kalush bio. In the Bill Kalush bio, *The Secret Life of Houdini*, he adds another story that took place before the Beck meeting, which really has nothing to do with performing, but if you want to check it out, it's in that book. On March 14th, Houdini gets a telegram from Martin Beck in Chicago. The telegram says, You can open Omaha, March 26th, at $60. We'll see act, probably make proposition for all next season. Houdini records in his journal, This wire changed my whole life's journey. So, Now let me explain the controversy. There are a few Houdini historians out there that are challenging a little bit of this information. And let me point out, these are real Houdini historians. Folks that I'm talking about have been studying Houdini for 40 and 50 years, so you just can't ignore their opinions. The new theory that's arisen has it that in March of 1899, Houdini did not actually meet Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the basis for this is the telegram that was sent to Houdini a short time later, which contains the wording, Will See Act, which sounds like he may have not seen the act previously, but rather, as is suggested, a surrogate that worked for Beck perhaps saw Houdini, but not Beck himself. I've also been told by another person that they think that Beck didn't have as much to do with Houdini taking magic out of his act, because Houdini was already doing mostly escapes by this time. So the story that's told in the biographies goes more towards the mythologizing Houdini rather than actual fact. Hmm. Okay. First, let me say, I think it's a very valid theory and and it makes sense. In fact, I was almost ready to jump on board and totally agree when I stopped myself and I thought, why not just check a couple things out first? So, I began doing a little bit of research through a couple newspaper archives during the period of January 1899 up until like October 1899. I was searching for Martin Beck, mainly to see if he was in St. Paul. And to my surprise, I didn't find him uh, mentioned in St. Paul at all. But what I did find was Martin Beck being all over the Midwest. In January of 1899, he was in Omaha. The paper said, He left in the evening to return to his home in Chicago. Another paper has him in Kansas City, Missouri, in February of 1899, meeting with other theater owners. Various articles have him in San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, and more. Often these articles mention that he's in town to meet with the the manager of a certain theater or certainly on theatrical business. So if we back up to what the original historical account was... Martin Beck, is in uh, March 1899, was in St. Paul. He was there with other theater managers when they stopped into the Palm Garden to get some beers. It just so happened that Houdini was performing at that time at the Palm Garden and was presenting his handcuff act. Beck asked him if he could get out of any cuffs. Houdini said yes. The next night, Beck returns with his own cuffs. And sure enough, Houdini's able to free himself. A few days later... Beck sent Houdini a telegram, the one I mentioned above, to which Houdini added, this telegram changed my life's journey. I think it's highly likely, given the fact that Beck was all over the Midwest during uh, this time, visiting various cities, that he very well could have been in St. Paul. There was no Orpheum Theater in St. Paul or in Minneapolis, but there would be very soon after this. And this very likely could have been the reason why Beck was visiting. It wasn't unusual for Beck to travel to various cities for work, and he wasn't, just, he wasn't just sitting in his office in Chicago. It was the train. The train could take him easily to quite a few cities in the Midwest. Also, because there was no Orpheum in St. Paul at the time of Beck's visit, I sort of doubt that Houdini contacted Beck to invite him to his show. I think it was more pure accident or, if you prefer, fate. According to the Ken Silverman bio on Houdini, Martin Beck says this about Houdini. No managers would believe your act was fit for vaudeville. They all considered it a museum act. Now take a look at what I said above. Houdini was working the Palace Museum and then the Palm Garden, which was an elaborate beer hall. Earlier that year, he was in Chicago at Colin Middleton's museum. Houdini was a museum act his act was kind of all over the place he had escapes card tricks scarf tricks the metamorphosis and more and I think he was I, he was slowly taking magic out and replacing it with escapes but sometimes an act can go from good to great simply by changing the order of the show sometimes changing a, a few lines in a script can be all that, you know, is needed to make a big difference. Comedians, for example, they sweat over every word in a joke, trying to take away as much as they can in order to make the joke as short but as funny as possible. In much the same way, Beck is the one that took Houdini's raw talent and molded it into the jewel it became. Now, I want to repeat that statement from Beck one more time. No managers would believe your act was fit for vaudeville. They all considered it a museum act. That statement also reveals that theater managers were aware of Houdini. He likely was contacting them, sending them press notices, but his resume only showed museum appearances, which was the thing holding him back. The very thing that he was doing was the thing holding him back. It's crazy. Now, to remove my detective hatchet for just a minute and put on my performer hat, um, I think it'll help me explain this next piece a little easier. Uh, I Frankly, I do believe that being a performer can give you a little bit of insight into another performer's life that might be missed by somebody that doesn't perform for a living. It's just my opinion. Consider this. this. This is all hypothetical, but listen. There's a performer. This person has a great act that is presented at birthday parties. Stay with me. Stay with me. This person does an incredible show. Both kids and adults love him. An agent sees him simply by chance and says, do you think you could get the same kind of response if you played a different venue? Maybe something other than somebody's living room. And the artist says, yes. Now, the performer gets booked to play a banquet hall. Same act. But the audience is different. The number goes from, say, 15 to 300. And the circumstances are different. Do you think that the agent is going to say to himself, well, I've already seen the act, I don't need to see it again. Or do you think the agent, who has now gone out on a limb, trusting his gut, he's going to go see this performer at a larger venue, he is most definitely going to go see him, to see how he's able to adjust to the new circumstances. Can the artist adapt, or can the artist really only play small venues? It's the same with Houdini. He was playing places that had smaller audiences. Granted, I'm sure he had a theater in there from time to time, but his act was a a mixture of material. Magic escapes, card tricks. Along comes Martin Beck. He has an eye for real talent. He can see a diamond in the rough. He tests Houdini out in Omaha. Houdini is a hit. Beck knows I've got something big on my hands. Houdini just needed the guidance, the tweaking, and the introductions into the right venues, and from there, his own talent would explode onto the scene. Yes, Beck sent the telegram that said, we'll see Act make an offer for next season doesn't mean that he didn't already see the act previously. It does mean he wanted to see it in its new environment, new audience. And very likely, the restructured act that came about from whatever tips or suggestions Beck had for Houdini. If the Kellogg biography is to be believed, Martin Beck told Houdini, I think you're a terrible showman. Why don't you cut out the little magic stuff and just give a couple of the big thrillers, the handcuffs and the trunk trick? I suppose it's possible for Beck to be so blunt, but I sort of doubt he told Houdini he was a terrible showman. But I don't doubt that he told him to pull the magic, however. By doing so, Houdini became a specialty act, the first escape artist, if you will. That was a very unique thing for the time. On one hand, he could be a generic magician, but on the other hand, he could be Houdini the handcuffed king. Who would you rather see? After Omaha, Houdini began to work the Orpheum Theaters all over the U.S. Beck didn't waste any time getting Houdini going. And Beck was working on a fall tour of Europe, which had to be held off until the spring of 1900 due to the war in Europe. Now, here's an unusual thing that I found in a newspaper from July 1899. It reads... In his dispatch, Mr. Beck states that European agents have been instructed to be on the lookout for the most attractive novelties to be found in the European capitals. So Martin Beck knew that European agents were looking for great acts to play in Europe, and he was quickly putting together a tour for Houdini because he would be one of the most unique things the Europeans had ever seen. Finally, I come to this sentence from Theo Hardine, Harry's brother. Although many persons claim to have made Houdini, all credit should go to astute Martin Beck. So that's my take on things. I believe Beck met Houdini in St. Paul. I think he gave him suggestions on how to change his act from a museum act to a vaudeville act. Houdini had the raw talent, he had all the ingredients, but it was Martin Beck as the master chef that put the ingredients together into a palatable dish that audiences would love. And I don't think there were major changes, only some tweaks and fine-tuning, and Houdini was ready to go. What is interesting is that Houdini acknowledges his big break with Martin Beck, but then after that... He spends much of his time arguing and fighting with Beck over fees and the amount of money that Beck is taking and other commissions as well. Beck has no problem fighting back either. The comment I made earlier, or I read earlier, no managers would believe your act was fit for vaudeville, they all considered it a museum act. That came about during one of their squabbles. Beck had planned for Houdini to return to America in the summer of 1900, but Houdini was busy with European dates. So Beck delayed it, and then delayed them more. And eventually, Houdini asked Beck if he could buy out his contract. They agreed upon a price. The, uh, the fee was going to be $500, and Houdini would be back to being his own manager. And things, that, things worked out pretty well for Houdini in the long run, but I wonder how different things would have been had he continued with Martin Beck. Now, Houdini never strayed very far from the Keith-Alby-Orpheum circuit, so in many ways he did remain true to Martin Beck. And Beck, as it turned out, was one of the honorary pallbearers at Houdini's funeral. Going back to the original issue, I still think it's a valid theory. The only way to say definitively that Martin Beck was in St. Paul in March of 1899 would be to find a hotel receipt with Martin Beck's name on it or a letter from Beck to Houdini which mentions the St. Paul event, but I don't think that's very likely. Now, if I might shift gears a bit, back in August, I put out the fourth Magic Detective Podcast contest. The question uh, for that contest was, what was the real name, not the stage name, the real name of Maurice Raymond's second wife? The answer was Pearl Beatrice Gonser. The answer could be found on episode 19 and also on episode 29. I had planned to give the prize out at the end of August, but apparently there was a glitch with my email account that I was unaware of, and I didn't get anybody's responses. So I held the contest through September and I'm now announcing the winner. The winner is everybody that entered the contest. And there weren't that many. <laughs> there were just a couple. Um, but uh, I, I hopefully I've already notified you that you won Um If you didn't get a notification from me, but you did send in the correct answer, please contact me and let me know. Um, That way I can verify it against my records and find out that, because I think I'm missing like one or two names. Um, So contact me if you, if, if I hadn't already contacted you, contact me so I can get you on the list and get a prize out to you. Um, So there, so that's it for that last year, season one's last uh, magic contest. Now, dear listener, I hope you liked the, uh, the podcast today. And if you have, I need something from you. If you could like the podcast and share it. Like basically means if there's a heart or a thumbs up or something on the uh, device you're listening to, press that. That's a, that's a like. And, uh, and share it. Tell other people about it. Also, if you happen to be listening on iTunes, please consider giving me a five-star review. All of these things will help to grow the audience for this program. And that is one of the big goals this year is to really expand the number of listeners. So go right now while it's still fresh on your mind, like share and write a review. So that is episode one of the magic detective podcast, the episode about the man who made Houdini. I hope you enjoyed that. My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the magic detective. I will be back soon soon. That means this week with another episode of the podcast. Until then, have a great week.